To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called, called to be saints, saints together, together with, with all those who are in every place. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there be no division among you. But that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For just as the body is one and has many members. And all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. For the, the body, body does not, not consist of one member, but of many. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Amen. Super happy to be here with you guys. Um, and yeah, today we are talking about 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 1 through... 15? I can't even remember. 16, probably. Um, so I'm really excited about this. This is a, a transition in the book of, of 1 Corinthians where Paul goes from talking about uh, theology and authority, and, then, and now he begins to transition into a, a place where the, the Corinthians had written Paul a letter, and they said, hey, we're trying to live this uh, this life, this gospel, this life of faith, and here's some, here's some situations that we're not really sure about. We don't really know what to do with, and so now Paul begins to address them. So there's an overarching theme in this, in this there's an overarching question in this passage of how do the people of Christ live as people of Christ in a broken world surrounded by broken relationships. So if you, if you have ever had that experience, that, that this walking through this life is confusing, I don't know how to navigate my experiences and this faith, the Savior that I have, these are the types of, of, of questions that Paul is beginning to address. So we get to, we get to walk through that with him with him today. Just some, some, uh, some uh, like compass notes, something to give you some direction. Uh, we're going to be, uh, in these passages, Paul is talking about, he's taking, he's taking theology, he's taking principles, and he's applying it to specific situations. And so what I'm going to try and do is we're going to touch on the fullness of the, of the scriptural category. So there's three categories that this passage talks about. We're going to touch on uh, the, the fullness of, that, of what Scripture says about each category, and then get into the particulars of what this passage particularly adds, what it emphasizes. So just, just you can have those, that map in your, in your mind. Those categories, by the way, are going to be marriage and singleness, sex, and divorce. So that's where we're going. One other, one other thing that sometimes trips people up about, about passages like these is Paul directly addresses men and women. And sometimes that throws us off because we, we start thinking, oh, is he, is he 
having something different to say to men and women. What, what's the relationship between men and women? There's this whole you know, cultural debate that, that we have going on around us and, and in the church. And one of the things that I want to point out before I read the passage is Paul is very balanced here. Uh, if he addresses men, he typically addresses women also. If he addresses women, he also typically uh, addresses men. So Paul here is being very balanced. I just want to point that out lest we have some unnecessary tension in, in walking through these things. So let's, let's open it up. Uh, we have, I don't know, if, I think we have slides of, for the passage. So this is 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. Now concerning the matters which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over, her, over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now I say this as a concession, not a command, but I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that your, your word reaches into the very fabric of our life, into the very heart of our experiences of our, uh, and of our emotions and how we respond to things. We thank you that your, your, your word is practical, livable, and we pray for wisdom and love to be able to put 
these principles, to understand these principles, and to put them into practice in, in our own life. So, Father, I pray that you be here with us. Whatever I say that is unhelpful, please wash it over, redeem it, and uh, take your truth and plant it deep within our hearts this morning. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So the first section is, sec- is verses 1 through 7, and, and I'm going to touch on 8 and 9. So this is the category of singleness and marriage, particularly focusing on singleness. So what is the balance? What's a, what's a good balance to understanding of singleness and marriage in Scripture? None of, none of us are meant to have fulfillment either individually or uh, as a married couple in ourselves or in marriage. The most, where, where we see fulfillment coming in from a, from a biblical perspective is between, is between a person and Christ and how that person engages with the church. So that means a couple things. If you, if you are single or married or whoever you are, you have everything that you need right now in the people who you are sitting around. That we are not ever in any lack so long as we have Christ and we have the church. It can be so easy to uh, get, get caught up in the relationships that we don't have or, or the, the difficulty of marriage, but uh, those things are pointing to a reality which is the fulfillment of Christ and the church. And so it takes off some of the it takes off some of the pressure. It takes off some of the some of the anticipation, some of the expectations that we have on each other when when we come into the church for our fulfillment. Secondly, having said that marriage is good. It is God likes marriage. He designed marriage. He intends marriage to be an analogy for Christ and the church. Whenever uh, I, I love the, uh, the Revelations passage being up here, that's, that's a, the picture of Christ the husband coming into his bride, the church, in the fullness of history, the fullness of time, the, so that all things would be bound up in in him for all of eternity. That's, that's the relationship that we are imaging as, as married people, but we, uh, people who are single, participate in that relationship in the church. Okay, getting, getting into the particulars of this passage, what does this passage have to say about the the, about singleness. Central, central point, central message, it is a good choice to stay single. This is often called, you know, Paul uses gift language. This is a gift. Singleness is a gift, and it's often called the, the you know, unwanted gift. Like, if you could have a spiritual gift, everybody's not choosing Singleness. Nobody's choosing singleness, right? Maybe some people do. Part. So what makes singleness good? Um, what Paul says here is that, single, is that basically 
marriage is hard. And to be, to be wed to a person is to be, in some sense, tied to the, the matters of this world. Because the, the, the connection between, between Christ and the church in Paul's mind is so strong that he looks at earthly marriages and he says, this is, these are things of the world. And it's good. It's not bad. It's, a, it's not a bad choice to choose to be married. In fact, that's some of the, that's some of the teachings that he's fighting against in, in, uh, in Corinth. There were people who were teaching this idea that you could only really be spiritual if you were single, or if you, if you never had sexual intimacy, or if you escape this world. And what Paul is saying here is, no, no, no. It's, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, but it's not... That's not everything. It's also good to be married. And yet, he calls marriage a, a thing of this world, that you're being tied into this world. And so what makes, mar- so what makes singleness good is we can be, as, mar- as single people, we can be devoted to the things of the bride of Christ. We can be devoted to our, our heavenly husband, as it were. So he says that, that that is a great, great decision to make. And he encourages people to do that. Now, I've sat with and heard a lot of the hurt that comes from this unwanted gift. I, I, I've heard of the, the, the self-doubt. I've heard the you know, feelings of, of, of worthlessness, that no one, is, no one has chosen me. There must be something wrong with me. I just want companionship and the loneliness that, that often accompanies this, you know, this, good, this good gift. And so... Paul, I don't think we're negating that. That is a real experience. What Paul is saying is you have everything that you need in the church, even as a single person. Just like married couples need the church, need their fulfillment to be in the church, even while they are married. The tension that we often have. So I want to. So let's broaden this. What? Let's put this in the broadest, broadest terms that we can that we can put it. The the tension that we're feeling here is what I have is not what I want. The tension is I'm looking at other people. I'm looking at society. I'm looking at my own desires, my own experiences, my own emotions, and. They're telling me that I have a lack of something, that, I, that, that what I really need is this other thing. If you've ever experienced that, this is, this is the, the, the core of, of the idea of what Paul is, is speaking to. That, that w- and what he says is, in Christ, in the church, we have the fullness of everything that we need. Ephesians 1 talks about 
that we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, it is a, it's a struggle to, uh, to hold on to that, to hold on to that blessing, to hold on to that goodness. It's a walk in faith. Our faith journey becomes difficult sometimes, but it's a good, it's a good journey to take. Marriage and singleness are both gifts. And Paul says one has one and one has another. And we, we need to seek contentment in the gifts that the Lord has given us. All right, secondly, Paul talks about sex. So what is, what is if we could kind of capture a a kind of a theology of sex. We might say that, that, that uh, the, the verse on the screen from uh, Revelation is, is really kind of helpful. So if, if Christ is the, bri- uh, the husband and the church is the bride, then the marriage supper of the Lamb is the culmination of that relationship. And so, in some sense, uh, sexual intimacy between a, between a husband and a wife is a is a is a picture of of that coming reality. That that our experience in sexual intimacy points us forward to a time whenever we will spend eternity with Christ in the culmination of all of history, all of time, all of everything. Uh, it's, it's a very, and for, for these, and God intends that to be the case. So, so there are lots of reasons why uh, sex is very powerful, and that's among them. All right, specifically, what does Paul say in this passage about about sex in marriage. In this, his emphasis in this passage is there is, a, there is a, a part of sex in marriage, and even marriage itself, which is meant to be an aid, to be helpful in fighting against sexual temptation, in fighting against uh, the just the the natural urges of our body and our mind and our soul. It this passage often strikes people as kind of utilitarian and not a very high view of marriage. And I think I think what Paul would probably say is uh, is well, this is just a realistic view. This is this is us as people of God trying to walk in a way which which doesn't elevate sex or marriage or singleness to any, any inappropriate level, but says, but also recognizes that it's very powerful. And, and so he says, kind of in, in summary, he says, don't deprive one another. He uses, he uses this word deprive. It's a, it's a financial language. It's, it's to say, uh, it's a debt, almost like it's, a, it's something that is owed. 
rightfully. It's a rightful, it's a rightful debt to this person. So he says, he says in, a, in a sense, he says, pay your, pay your debts. Give your dues to your spouse. He says, don't, don't deprive one another. This means that sex in marriage is a right. Other people have said that you have that you know Paul uses the language of authority. You do not have authority over yourself. Your spouse does not have your spouse has authority over you. Um, likewise, both ways. He doesn't make he doesn't say just women or he doesn't say just men, but both parties. This means that sex is, sex in marriage is, is a right. It's not a privilege. It's not a bargaining chip. It's not a carrot on a stick. It is a, it is a debt to be given, in a, in a sense. It's a right. Now, some of you, you know, I've often, I would often hear people kind of try to, okay, well, what does... Let's get specific, you know. What, what does it really mean to not... Like, how, how many times a month are we talking, right? Um, that, those types of questions utterly miss the point. To help illustrate that, let's, let's broaden the principle. The principle, I think, if we could state it in the simplest terms, Paul is saying... You have needs, and the people around you have needs. And love seeks to meet those needs. For Paul, this is not, he's, he's applying principles to this specific situation in Corinth that they wrote him about, but the principles are love comes into a person to meet their need, to know them. To, to know what they are looking for, know what they need, and to meet it. You could say this the, ac- the exact same thing about uh, non-sexual parts of a, of a relationship, desires for uh, intimacy, de- desires for um, conversation, to be, to be wanted, to be pursued, to be you know, to have a back rub. I don't know what it is for you, for, for you guys, but there's this principle of, you know, you could, you could talk about the, need, the, uh, the physical needs, the emotional needs of your kids, of your, of your neighbors, of the world, of all the people around you. This principle is find out what people need and seek to meet the need. A couple, a couple uh, kind of hands-on things that might make this easier. Be open about the fact that you are needy. It's okay to be needy. To, to call yourself needy, to have needs, is really nothing other than to call yourself not God. That, that to be able to be open uh, with your spouse, whether about sexual needs or about uh, whatever the needs may be, Hey, I need you to pick up the kids, right? Uh, that, 
those kind of things, it's okay to be needy. We all are. And so being open with them, being honest about them is vital. That's where communication starts. A second principle is, is, is along that lines of that question, well, where's the line? How much can I do until I, until I can be done? That principle is utterly foreign to what Paul is saying here. Paul says, go. Know the person. Meet their need. Be gracious just as your Savior was gracious to you that he came down into this world and met your need when he had no need of his, of his own. So if we could, if we could sort of conclude that, that section, we might say, do not deprive one another of love in all of its forms. So one... Uh, one thing that we have to talk about is uh, sexual brokenness. This passage, specifically, has been used in terrible, terrible ways throughout church history, throughout American history. Uh, in, in, uh, there, there's a lot of hurt that a misunderstanding of this passage uh, fosters. So, Couple, two principles that, that might help in thinking through this. What, what happens whenever, whenever conf, conflicting needs arise? Okay? Maybe you have had a really rough day, and you, what you need is sleep. And you know, your spouse has sexual needs. Conflicting needs. Rather than any any formula, I think what Paul is, is urging us to right here is what can love give to a person in need? It's a compromise. It's a, it's a sacrifice. How can I die to myself to give you what you need? There's no hard and fast. It's that openness, that communication is vital in, throughout this process. Also vital is knowing the lengths of the sacrifice that Christ has given to you that, that says he gave everything. What can we give to the people around us? Secondly, uh, in this sexual brokenness realm, where does, where, where does this principle go too far? Um, it goes too far in, in oppression in marriage, sexual uh, abuse in marriage is a huge problem in even in the church, even but also just everywhere in our culture. Probably the most simple uh, thing to say about this passage is that while sex is a right in marriage that you do not have the right to take your right by force. Think about, think about Jesus. 
if Jesus, Jesus going to the cross, he had every right to call down a legion of angels and take out everybody and to have justice. It was his right to do that. What he did instead was he went to the cross. He died to himself. He emptied himself. Jesus would rather have died than to take by force what is his by right. You do not own the fullness of your spouse. There's a, there's a give and take as equals. That's how the Lord intends it to be. Along those lines, if, uh, if you have experienced any, any type of sexual assault or uh, marriage, uh, whether in marriage or, or outside of marriage, please talk to Nick or Jeff or get a hold of me, and uh, we can begin a process of healing because the Lord does heal. He does redeem these issues. Next, divorce. Balance. Uh, one, one of the, where we have to start while thinking about marriage and divorce is that God ordained marriage. He, he commands marriage on, uh, to Adam and Eve that what, what God has joined together, no man should separate, including, including ourselves. That marriage is a big, big deal because it's a, it's a picture of Christ in the church. We, a, a relationship which lasts for all of eternity. Uh, and yet, because God knows that we live in a, in a broken world with broken relationships, God's word allows situations where divorce is appropriate. You can, you can look those up in Matthew 19 and Mark 10, when, when Jesus himself uh, allows for an, ex, an experience of, of divorce, even among peop, uh, the people of God. So what specifically does this, does this passage say? It's rather straightforward. Uh, verses 10, 10 through 12, if I could summarize those, when two believers are married, don't get divorced. You know, don't do it. There, there are lots and lots of reasons why, why a divorce becomes a part of a person's thinking, a part of the conversation. And what Paul, what Paul essentially says is, put those away have have compassion have have love which says we are going to get through this i'm going to be committed to you because i've been shown a commitment beyond anything that i deserve often you know this idea of irreconcilable differences come you know comes up 
and thinking about how how Christ might have experienced irreconcilable differences. I, I think about you know the the people the people of Christ's church as he was going to the cross. They they chanted crucify him crucify him crucify him. If this was not enough for Christ to give up on that relationship. That, the, that that difference that they saw, they wanted out, was not enough for, for Christ to leave that relationship. Now, um, and they later became members of his, of his body. Now, if you're divorced, uh, I hope that we can find some encouragement here because if you have, if for whatever reason you've divorced your spouse, we can know that you did not at the same time divorce God, that God comes to where you are. He has not given up, that the pain and the, 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 the painful self-reflection that, that goes on in these, in these moments are, are redeemable. They are covered by the blood of the one who loves us perfectly. So we can be, you know, self-assessing. We can be, we can, we can look at what our part was and own it and grow and be sanctified. The next part in verses 13 through 16 uh, again, Paul's just very straightforward. If you, if you are living with a, an unbeliever, uh, if you are married to an unbeliever and they want to stay married, awesome. Do that. Love. Uh, let love sanctify uh, your family. Let love wash over and, uh, and be and take over your experience in that relationship. But if they want to go, you, you don't have to be enslaved. He uses very powerful language. The believer is not a slave. So often, uh, there's been a lot of cases where people, believers will stay in an in a unhelpful, uh, hard relationship with, you know, and, and hang on to a... a a non-believer who would just rather go. And Paul says, be free. You, you, you have done what you need to do. Live in peace. The Lord of peace will come and wash, wash you, will redeem your hurts, will act in that person if he if, if he if the Spirit wants to, but you are not powerful enough to do that. So be at peace. In, I think you've, hopefully you've seen that our, the, the guiding principles here are, are Christ and the church. So, in, as I close, I just want to look again at our, at our majestic husband. 
Christ himself. Christ loves and pursues and fulfills us. He is our most important and impactful relationship. Though Christ had no needs, he came close to us. He came down to where we are, to know us and to meet our needs by giving up his rights. And we are empowered by the Spirit to do exactly the same for those around us. Our Savior, our eternal husband, will never leave us, will never forsake us, and we will be raised with him in glory at that wonderful, awesome marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we glory in you. We, we thank you that you have loved us to the extent that we can be like you. We can love as you love because you empower us to do that. I pray that you would help us to apply these principles in, into our hearts first and then into our lives, into the relationships that we are close with. And I pray that you would bring yourself glory and honor through that process as we lift up your son, which, which, who loved us as the perfect husband for his bride. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Our